In this episode of the museum, I am joined by Father Andreas Andreopoulos to discuss his book, Gazing on God. This book presents an Orthodox Christian approach to icons and iconography and focuses on the role of the icon in the faith and experience of Orthodox Christians as a way through which the Christian interacts with God both in and outside of time. Father Andreas is a priest of the Greek Orthodox Church, and both he and myself are faculty at Agora University's Holy Transfiguration College. Father Andreas is also a faculty member at the University of Winchester in the United Kingdom. This is a fun and interesting episode. I think you'll enjoy it. So let's go ahead and get started. The power of positive thinking impresses upon your mind the immediate desire to click the subscribe button now. Father Andreas, I'm, I'm happy to have you with me today, and um, I think it's a good time to discuss your text, um, Gazing on God. And this is Thank a, you very much, Michael. Yeah, this is a book um, that, it's a, it's a text about icons, or is it? You know, th that's kind of what I, I took from it. Um, how would you describe, how would you describe the book, and why did you decide to write it? I know you and I have um, fun conversations about art and aesthetics and, um, you know, what was motivating it? Well, that's a very good question. Um, in the past, I have written other um, books or articles about icons in, a, let me say, in a more usual perspective. Now, what does that mean? Um, I have written a book on the uh, history and the theology of the icon of the Transfiguration, for instance. But this is, in a sense, a text that would be familiar to the people who have already started uh, studying icons. Um, so it would be something that uh, a, an art historian or perhaps a theologian might be interested in. In some other texts, uh, such as this book that you mentioned, Gazing on God, I want to do something slightly different, although it is um, a work that is very much based on research. It has academic expectations, as it were. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit on the narrative of what is an icon and why is it important? What is it doing for us? And these are concepts that we take for granted in the East, um, in churches such as the Coptic Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and, you know, any of these traditions, because we, we live with icons. And um, it is fascinating that when I often have a um, a presentation, when I give a presentation about icons to people here in the UK or in uh, the States, I address Anglicans or Catholics and I start by telling them that icons, uh, right now you think of them as something Eastern. They used to be part of your own tradition. Um, so they're, they're your own thing as much as it is my own thing as well. Um, and 
engaging on God, I wanted to, to go a little, uh, a few steps back before I started talking specifically about icons and say something about the aesthetic ex expectations or what do icons uh, do? What does iconography do? How does it contribute to spirituality in a way that um, hopefully makes sense to the, the average educated uh, um, um, believer perhaps uh, in the Western tradition? I've done some, some similar um, projects, I can say, with, uh, with uh, some slightly different things. Uh, another book where I, I, I try to, uh, to address in exactly this perspective is something that I wrote a few years ago titled uh, uh, The Sign of uh, the Cross. And once again, you know, crossing ourselves as we do, um, in the, especially in the Eastern, but also in the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, this is something that... Um, uh, once belonged to the entire Christian world. And it's something that we do, we don't think about it. And I thought, well, how can I explain this to a friend of mine? And actually I had a specific friend of mine um, as yeah, a model for that sort of thing. Uh, a friend of mine who is uh, a, a professor of theology uh, or Protestant theology in a, in a university in Texas, who is not familiar at all with Eastern uh, theology, but who had a very open mind. So what would I do to explain to the, something like that to, to my friend there or to his daughter who just about uh, uh, started to, uh, to study theology? And actually, as um, having published a few articles and books uh, in my career already, um, I have found that the, the ones that I wrote having a specific person in mind tend to be more successful. Mm. Than, they are, than the ones uh, that are, let's say, just academic studies, the ones that I just write for myself. It helps me as a writer to imagine that I'm writing something for you specifically or for somebody who has these specific needs. That's, so. no, I think that's a great approach. And, you know, when I, what I like about the text and, um, you know, I, I started by saying, you know, it's a book about icons, question mark, right? Like, or is it? And I, I think... The title is very appropriate. Uh, I hope it's your title, not the publisher's. But it is. <laughs> okay, good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not about the icons per se. I think your set of examples are really interesting. But if you got rid of all of them, you could bring in a whole new set of examples, and it's equally yep. equally applicable. So it, it's really about this. Um, call it the divine gaze or, or gazing, you know, gazing on God as the title is, but it, it's preparing. And you do this in the first four chapters of the, of the book, you prepare the reader to then make meaningful the conversation about icons. Um, I would say it feels, and I don't know the right way to say it um, to capture what I want to say. It feels catechetical. Mm -hmm. without necessarily being catechetical. Like, I mean, it's, uh, you really do lay the groundwork theologically. And, you know, you, you mentioned um, Orthodox people in the East grow up with icons. And I think someone in a, a Western setting might think, okay, they grow up where there's icons around them. But I could hear what you said, especially after reading your text, it's not growing up with icons in the sense that they're just there, but mm -hmm. that they are with us mm -hmm. in the same way that they they um, impress the reality of these people or events existing with us. And you know, you start the book off that way with 
faith and experience, right? Mm-hmm. Why is why is faith and experience so important? And, and why why the trajectory that you did with the first couple chapters that um, you know they're they're far more theological and not just theological. You could call them. Um, well, I mean, uh, theology intersects with all those fields, but they they lay the groundwork for encountering reality, mm. not just the icon, wouldn't you say? Or is that what your in- intent? Yes. Um, I think you touched on, on a couple of very important things here, such as experience. And also, as you said it very correctly, that if we were to just uh, get rid of these specific icons, examples, um, um, the same thing could have been done with other icons. So by no means um, this tries to be a systematic presentation of icons. There are several books that try to do that, um, well, varying uh, degrees of success. But if there was a point to be made here is um, that um, people who are not familiar with icons or and also people who think that they're familiar with icons think of them sometimes as uh, religious decoration. Let's say we can consider the prayer space, the liturgical space, which is the church building. And uh, well, instead of um, um, uh, decorating it with appropriate colors, we decorate it with uh, religious images. That's not what's happening here at all. Um, and one way to speak about icons, first of all, in a liturgical space, in a church, in a worship space, but also at home, is um, to say that, uh, to recognize rather that um, they're, they're carriers of the presence of the, uh, the people they represent, the saints they represent. So in that sense, um, we think of, um, of images as something that we look at. Okay, in this case, the whole semiotics of what is an icon also sets it up for some that is looking towards us. And this is something that um, I think touches on what you mentioned earlier, that we, we, uh, we live, we grow up with icons, not just as part of uh, the, the extended surrounding, but as if we refer to living presences. Uh, from a young age, we develop that kind of relationship with, uh, with the icon as, as a presence, not with any type of image, but with icons specifically, even at home. So I think one very important um, uh, aspect to explain about what is an icon and not a religious painting, um, or you know, that's another way to, to, to say the same thing, that an icon is not simply a religious painting. It's something very different, something much more than that. It suggests a very specific presence. It's as if you know, Jesus, Mary, Peter, you know, the, the, the person who is presented there is somehow present and that is what gives us a focus to, um, to direct our prayer. Of course, we do not worship the, the paint or, or the wood itself, but it helps us channel, as it were, our, our prayer towards them. So the icon as a presence is part of our experience. And experience is what we want to have in mind when we uh, speak about truth in the Christian tradition. It is, I think, very important to remember that uh, Christianity is not a philosophical system. Well, of course, it has many philosophical um, aspects, many philosophical um, uh, parts in it. Uh, it, does, it didn't start as a systematic um, um, edifice, mm. systematic philosophy or anything like this. Mm. Uh, it, did, it did not even start 
And that may sound uh, a little challenging uh, as, uh, as a religion, if by religion we consider the organized beliefs of the people um, who help uh, that society to deal with its metaphysical identity. It started as, as something very different. It started as a divine revelation and how that revelation of Jesus Christ becomes became and still is part of our everyday life. So it is something that addresses, first of all, our direct experience. When St. Paul um, explains this, uh, he says that, well, they, uh, the Jews um, seek signs. They want to see uh, some signs that um, uh, say something about the, the, the revelation of God in this way. Um, and Greeks, that means all philosophers, um, uh, go after religious thought, philosophy. Uh, but we don't do one or the other. We preach or we follow um, Jesus Christ and he is crucified. So they, uh, we, fo we follow what seems to be the way of weakness, but it's the, the experience of dealing with that challenge every single day of our life. Um, so that's something about the, the first thing about icons. The other thing that I want to stress, and not in this book only, but uh, I think every single time I'm giving a lecture about icons or um, write something about icons is that uh, when we um, consider the thought of the past, the theological thought of, of the past, um, we usually start with um, doctrinal proclamations, with sermons, with histories, with things like that. And once again, uh, we think of icons as a surrounding uh, to this serious thought. Mm -hmm. Well, this is not um, this is not precise because. Um, there are several examples, and you know, some of the examples that we can find in, 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 in Gazing of God in, in this book shows that um, um, icons are not just the end products of theological thought, but sometimes they are theological thought in a different way. You know, we, 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 we tend to uh, visualize thought as something that is similar to, to philosophy or to, to language. But of course, now we can point to thought in many different ways. Uh, we think in images, we think in symbols, we think in different ways, and icons, and of course the liturgical and the dramatic language of the church as well, um, encapsulates very much that kind of um, uh, um, thinking image. So when we go back and examine the tradition of the uh, Christian thought, of the Christian church, it is right, of course, that we look into doctrines, into sermons, into things like that as sources for theological thought. One of my uh, main arguments, in you know, to say like that, as an iconologist, uh, is that icons have equal value to all these things as sources and not just as products of theological thought. Um, so that's that's part of what I was uh, trying to do in this book. In the second part. Um, which goes through some examples of, uh, of, of, of specific icons, which, as you said very correctly, could be others. I chose some of the, of the ones that seemed a little more easy to, to open up, and some uh, towards the end, especially the, the more unusual ones. Um, but I wanted to have an introduction as to um, how do we set up for experience, openness, uh, a different kind of thought in the Christian tradition. And this is where icons come in and fill uh, that gap. I think the way that um, you stage the conversation is really important, especially, you know, that last set of comments, how 
we now can speak of thinking in images and, mm-hmm. you know, not, it's not bound to language, um, which, you know, nowadays, at least we associate with written images with mm-hmm. words that are codified and spelled certain ways, and they have their own history or orthography and etymology, etc. But that there's more to the way we encounter and experience reality and the way uh, we interface with one another through that common experience. And I, I found myself like reflecting on how icons sing to me sometimes. So mm. if I'm ever in the presence of certain icons, you know, I'll, I'll hear, you know, right. And all these different um, melodies emerge and lyrics that are, they're getting triggered by the way that reality is presented in the icon mm-hmm. or that the icon is presenting reality, I should say, mm-hmm. rather than a, a representation of the historical. And I know you um, spend a lot of time discussing that contrast, at least in terms of things like the resurrection icon and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you um, if, if you could talk to us just a little bit about what it means to live in the Logos. So you have your second chapter is about the logos, which you know we we associate with um, Christ, the the logos of God, right? Um, and I, I think most folks in the West may not get the conversation you provided, given the the backdrop to what this idea is. Could you say a little bit more about? number one, the logos, sure. but what it means to live in the logos as it applies to this. Sure. Um, now, that's um, that's one of the most simple and more difficult areas in, in uh, Christian theology, in biblical theology. Um, and many people may know that um, the gospel according to John starts with the phrase, in the beginning was they, what exactly? Now, the Greek word there is logos. And that most usually is translated as word, but that's a reduction in its meaning because logos is such an ex- is an extremely rich uh, word that means many things. It means um, word, of course. It means speech. Um, so both the um, the speech that has been uttered and the one that has not been uttered yet. It means um, uh, principle, it means analogy, it means ratio, um, it means reason in both understandings of, of reason, both as in the rational and you know, the reason that we do something. Uh, it means all of those things uh, uh, at the same time. And also as a, uh, as a philosophical concept, it has had a, a long tenure before Christianity. Um, perhaps one of the first times we come across logos as a philosophical concept is in the philosophy of uh, Heraclitus, um, one of the most interesting ancient philosophers. Um, to, to compare Heraclitus with somebody who is more well known to, to most people, such as Aristotle, would be similar to comparing a, a mystic uh, with a scribe. <laughs> right. Without with, without wishing to, to, um, to insult Aristotle at all. <laughs> And in fact, I do have a lot of respect for uh, for, for that thought uh, for that uh, uh, tradition as well. Um, but Heraclitus is trying to do very something very different, mm-hmm. and the logos um, for him, with all of these meanings, both as as word, as principle, as harmony, as ratio, all those things, uh, is a very central 
concept in his philosophy. It is something like the, the hidden um, harmony, the hidden uh, uh, secret of the entire world. Um, it is interesting, however, that Heraclitus was active in uh, the city of Ephesus, and the tradition of Heraclitus maintained, is maintained there for a very long time, for several centuries. Now, there's no accident that John the Theologian wrote both the Book of Revelation, according to tradition, and the Gospel um, that bears his name in that part of the world. So if he had come in contact with, uh, with local uh, intelligentsia, with the local uh, theological philosophical circles, uh, he certainly came across with a uh, philosophical tradition of logos. That's one um, reason how we can see that it, it penetrates Christian vocabulary. Um, there's also another interesting background to, uh, to logos before, just before it enters uh, Christian vocabulary. And that is with one of the um, uh, most forgotten, unjustly forgotten uh, figures in, um, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. That is Philo of Alexandria, known as sometimes as Philo the Jew. Now, Philo is extremely important for all Christian tradition because he's uh, probably the, the first uh, person who thought it would be a good idea to take the... Uh, uh, the tradition of, of revelation, and that for him, being a Jew, meant what we refer to as the Old Testament, and um, uh, just oppose it, or actually interpret it using it the using the philosophical language of the time, which mostly for for, for him meant uh, Platonism. So it's the first time that these two are brought together. Uh, we could not imagine Christianity without this kind of connection. What we see later starting, of course, from the tradition of Alexandria, with people such as Clement and Origen and uh, their descendants, mm -hmm. uh, their intellectual descendants, Evagris and so on, but also the Cappadocians, Basil, um, the two Gregories, um, and the entire uh, philosophical Christian tradition starts with what Philo does first. So we owe him uh, a huge debt of, uh, of, of, of gratitude. Um, and he's not being Christian, he is not acknowledged by the Christian writers as much as he should have been. It's very few who actually um, betray their sources and say that, well, I found this idea in Philo. Some do, but not nearly the, uh, as many as they should have. But the reason I'm saying this, all this about Philo is that um, the concept of logos is something he finds in the philosophical tradition, and he gives it a very central place in his own examination of the biblical tradition. So how big is this? Um, one of the most famous passages of Philo is where he talks about the visit of the three angels to Abraham. And he takes this as, a, as an entry point to speak about the complexity in God. Uh, well, complexity in what sense? Of course, we, we know that God, that, uh, that God is one. There's a unity there. We're not talking about uh, um, multiple gods. That's very clear in the, uh, in the Hebrew tradition and also in the uh, Christian tradition. Having said that, there is a sense of complexity in God. When God in the beginning of Genesis um, says, let, uh, uh, let us create the world, let us do this, it's, he speaks in plural about himself. Let us do this. 
Now, from a Hebrew perspective, this is um, this is a little more difficult to um, to to, to, um, to explain. From the Christian perspective, it's a little easier because we have been given the revelation of the Trinity. All right. Now, Philo does something wondrous from a Hebrew perspective when he talks about that visit of the three angels, and of course, he first wants to uh, to talk about the complexity. Now, for Philo. There is a uh, differentiation between the the essence of God Himself and what He calls the powers of God. There's only one God, but there are many different ways to consider His powers. Uh, of course, the same differentiation is passed to the Orthodox tradition, to the Christian tradition, uh, with the only difference that instead of powers, the usual word that um, that is employed is energies. So the, the distinction between the, uh, the essence and the energies of God that we find in, in Basil, uh, in Maximus, in Gregor Palamas is something that, that we owe to, to Philo, and not many people know that. Um, so Philo speaks about the, the various powers of God, such as the, the royal power, the creative power, so on, so on. But he says, there is one power that stands beyond and above all of them and coordinates them. So it's the one that, in a sense, expresses um, the presence of God more clearly than any other aspect or power of God. And that power for Philo is the Logos. So he develops a Logos theology uh, that anticipates the Messiah. Um, it is not very clear how messianic expectation played into this in, in the thought of Philo, but certainly it uh, it is consistent with, a, um, uh, with the prophetic anticipation of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So when uh, Christian theology steps into all this and finds the thought of Philo, well, it's, it's very clear that by Logos we mean um, Jesus Christ. But also some, one of the, the interesting things that you, things that you ask is, uh, well, yeah, it's, there, there is a philosophical or theological uh, way to consider Logos. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us today? What does it mean for all creation for that matter? Well, one of the fascinating things about the Logos, about considering Jesus Christ as the Logos, uh, is not just to think of him as the second person of the Trinity, the one who was incarnate for our salvation and all that, sure. But um, uh, the Logos is something that connects uh, the creator with every single part of the entire creation. So one way to consider the fallen state of creation is to say that uh, the original touch, the original um, uh, um, content, the original um, uh, meaning of, of creation was tainted after the fall and it became unsynchronized from its creator, from God. And um, one way to describe our trajectory towards salvation is to try to find that harmony with every part of the entire nature for that matter, not just humanity. And that, that's fascinating that this kind of theology uh, predates, uh, pre precedes uh, environmental theology by centuries. So we don't limit this observation only to, um, uh, to the Christian church, or only to humanity, but to uh, the entire uh, the, the entire nature of the, the entire creation to, to some extent at least 
uh, with the human being as the agent who initiates all this in response to the calling of God, however. Um, so every single part of creation can reflect the presence or the memory of, uh, of God itself. So this is a way to address in some, in, in some aspect what you, um, what you refer to as uh, the significance of uh, living in a Logos, um, uh, in, in a Logos life. Uh, living um, with awareness and with the participation of um, of ju not just ourselves but of every single part of creation as a, a, a as something that came out of the um, out of the hands of God. It's easy to see why you would choose some you know not to translate that word when you're reading John, <laughs> right? You know, in the beginning was the man. Do I have to say word? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do we translate that? This this is so. Uh, this is a rich word. What do I do with this? And um, the choice of word might have been the best one that we can have in the English language. Um, I remember a few years ago, I saw, well, I can only describe it as the translation of a translation, um, but I was made aware of how uh, the Gospel of John was translated into other languages including some of the oriental ones. I don't remember if it was in Japanese or in Chinese or one of the, of the languages of, um, of that family. But the translation there was, in the beginning, was the Zen. Now, that was absolutely inspired because the Zen um, in that part of the world means much more than you know, the word. It means something very similar to um, the hidden principle, the hidden harmony of, of, the, of the entire creation. So I thought, well, yes, that's much closer to um, uh, to what this is, uh, to what laws means than uh, the word. The word is one of the, is a necessary choice, but it, uh, it leaves um, uh, many of the of the vital uh, um, uh, aspects of what uh, laws really means. Ex yeah, and um, you know the idea of living in the logos in this this you know, you know what did you call it the um, you know, it's something with cosmological dimensions. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not something that's, con that we would like to confine. And I think that that's the, the general tension with the way it gets translated is, well, we're kind of left with something that, you know, and I don't know the, the historical etymology or tradition behind word, um, verbum, maybe mm -hmm. Latin, you know, and what it means, maybe it's, has to do with activity and mm -hmm. uh, either way it's lost on us by now, I think mm. is, is the point. And um, that idea of you know, participating in reality um, at a scale that we have maybe disconnected from seeing or en encountering is a better word seeing, right? We're implying <laughs> the, the <laughs> eyes. And um, as you, as you write in another place, and I think it, it it seems to really cross over into this text too. It's the idea of, um, well, I mean, you talk about it when you talk about the resurrection icon and how we we call him the King of Glory and not mm -hmm. the King of the Jews, right? It's not mm -hmm. just Jesus of Nazareth, Basileos Yehudi. Um, it's instead, you know, the King of Glory, and so it's it's perceiving then um, reality as it as it ought, you know, yep. or as is more appropriate to the, I uh, don't want to use big words, but the ontological you mm -hmm. know, uh, function of what's being conveyed or what we're trying to 
memorialize and participate in actively, at least to actively participate in that sort of memory. So I'm, I'm thinking about the way that, you know, there's inverted perspective and naturalistic depiction or naturalist perspective Mm -hmm. and why icons then they don't go after, they're not trying to replicate a moment in time. They're not trying to be Mm -hmm. a a documentary, right? You know, I mean, they're, they have their own way of um, imaging and creating the world. Could you say a little bit more about inverted perspective and especially the notion of the mirror um, mm-hmm. as it applies to, you know, I mean, this is something we, we saw in, um, you know, in the early uh, well, um, Plato, right? Plato talks about the mirror yep. and um, patristic literature too. I know it's very prevalent in the Syriac tradition um, mm-hmm. from the Syrian has a lot of fascinating poetry about, you know, what a mirror is and how that, um, that inverted perspective is a, a way of accessing, I don't want to say portal or door, because then, you know, this will, this will go sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. And my sci-fi episodes are coming up in a couple of weeks. But um, in the meantime, right, it's a way of accessing um, a, a consciousness, you know, that we otherwise, we probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most fascinating things in iconography, uh, when we start talking about uh, the technique, um, things such as, as you mentioned, the importance of the of the mirror or inverted perspective is that we do not find any manuals that describe what that is. Uh, the earliest manual uh, on iconography that uh, we, um, we have is as late as I think the uh, the 18th or 19th century. So in that very long tradition of um, uh, of iconography, we can see different styles, um, specific ways of approaching space, of um, of symbolism, the, and yet there doesn't seem to be a theoretical text that um, um, uh, that informs them. Uh, well, nothing as as a systematic theory. Now, um, this can mean two things: either the I think less likely uh, possibility that there was such a text or if not a text, an oral tradition among iconographers that explain what we see here, so that the theory of the invariant perspective is something that had existed for some time, or most likely, uh, because there's no indication, nobody refers to anything like this, uh, directly or indirectly, not even to a text, but not even to a, let's say, teaching or uh, a perception among iconographers. So most likely, uh, this means that the way of um, creating the iconographic space is something that uh, became second nature to, uh, to iconographers who were simply following the, the thought process that they, they identified in the images. So we spoke earlier about how a thought may be conveyed not just in word, mm-hmm. but in different ways, in action, in, um, in dramatic terms, in, in images in this case. So it seems that the images themselves created that uh, concept of uh, the inverted perspective. So what we mean, what we, uh, what is this? And what does this happen with, with the mirror? Um, it is easier for us to use these concepts now because we have to, uh, to consider what the icon is somewhat intellectual. We don't always live with the icon that gives us the, the, the answer to questions like that um, uh, more easily. 
So to understand how an icon is different from a religious image, from any other image, is well, that's why we, we need uh, concepts like that. Um, so sometimes we see that um, icons are more correctly understood or described when um, we don't try to interpret them using the standard uh, visual perspective that we see in, um, in any kind of work of art. So what are we talking about? The standard, let's say, Renaissance way of painting a portrait was to paint something that looks like a window. And if you place it uh, next to your real window, you could see out of, um, uh, you could, you could um, um, almost confuse what you see out of the, the window into nature out there and what you see in the um, uh, in, in the picture, the image. So something that uh, could be mistaken perhaps for a real depiction, a realistic, a naturalistic depiction. Um, the icon is never trying to do that. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we have to keep in mind about the tradition of iconography is that when we look at some of the examples of Hellenistic uh, painting, and the most famous example of this is uh, the tradition of the so-called Fayum portraits. Uh, the yeah. the many funerary portraits that we associate very often with, with mummies, with sarcophagi, uh, and with, uh, with cemeteries. Of course, that's a long tradition. It's not just the, the big collection um, that was found in the, in, in the town of Fayum in Egypt. It, it spans a few centuries. And actually, well, oh, oh, I cannot resist but adding this. Uh, this uh, it, for me, it was one of the most impressive things um, to, uh, to look at when I visited the, the Museum of, of Cairo. There's a section of sarcophagi, and I saw so many um, sarcophagi of poor people, or not as early as the old pharaohs, um, and the, the person was depicted there in precisely this way, in that, uh, in that style. So the interesting thing about the Fayum portraits is that they, they display all the knowledge of the Renaissance about perspective, chiaroscuro, mm. the source of light. So these people in the Eastern Mediterranean knew how to paint in the naturalist way that we find right. later in the Renaissance. And therefore, if they created icons that did not seem to have an obvious source of light, or that they seem to uh, ignore the rules of natural perspective. It's not because they didn't know how to paint. They knew very well how to paint. They tried to do something else there. So in very perspective, gives us a couple of um, paradox um, uh, observations. Um, it allows us sometimes to uh, observe something such as a, a, a cave a building as if we see the, uh, the inside, as if we're part of the image uh, ourselves. Mm -hmm. So um, this is not something necessarily that you notice the first time you look at an icon. And of course, that's how you live with an icon. Uh, it's, it's something that grows on you when you see the same icon in the same place of your house or the same place in the church. So the impression of what that thing is, is something that... Um, um, that uh, gains, so we say, in meaning, the more you're exposed to it. Mm -hmm. You don't need to, to make a, a formal sort of intellectual observation for this to, to work in this way. It does. So sooner or later, to put like that, the space of the icon draws you inside, inside it. And you begin to, um, to feel like a participant. You begin to, um, to feel that, like you have a dialogue with the people who are represented there, not just an object 
placed at some distance for you to look at, but um, a, uh, a way of addressing the represented person and a way that the represented person is also addressing and perhaps answer your own prayers. Um, now, to connect that with something else that you mentioned before, which is very important about not just icons, but uh, generally the way we understand time um, in, uh, in the Christian, in the Orthodox tradition, and festival time especially. You mentioned the, the Feast of the Resurrection before. And I think that's a very good key for, for us to understand how time is working in, um, in Christian feasts and in icons that um, take after this, this understanding as well. Um, now, there are several different, different ways to consider um, a, an, a, an event of um, huge importance, such as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? And the first level is to consider it from a historical point of view. Is it something that happened? Is it something that took place in more or less the way that we um, that we see described in the Gospels in the tradition? And the resounding answer to this question in the Christian tradition is yes. It is the foundation very much of the um, of the Christian faith. Without this, as Saint Paul says, we would not have any um, uh, any uh, any uh, any basis to, to claim anything else in the um, in, in Christianity. So there's no doubt as to the history of the resurrection. But this is not what is important for, um, um, for the rationale that we find in the icon or for the way that we, um, that, that we, um, we celebrate our feasts. The interesting thing about the icon of the resurrection, of the Orthodox icon of the, of, of the resurrection is that it does not try to represent the, um, the moment of the resurrection as um, we could have imagined it. So the image of Jesus emerging from the tomb is something that was known to the Eastern since the, uh, the ninth century at least. We have some examples of, of that icon being present, but they showed no interest in developing it. It doesn't say enough. It's just an exploration of the historical um, resurrection only. And that's not interesting because we don't need proof for this. We know it happened. So what? Yeah. Right. Instead, and actually I happen to have um, that kind of icon here <laughs> next to me. Somebody gave it to me. That is the more usual type of um, resurrection. Now, what do we see in this case? We do not see Jesus Christ emerging from the tomb. We see what is sometimes this, uh, described as the descent to Hades. Now, that is not a, an event that is described in any way in the Gospels or in the New Testament. There is perhaps an allusion to something like that in one of the epistles of Peter uh, that says something about um, Jesus visiting the, the spirits in prison. Um, but hard theology would show us that um, at the moment of the death of Jesus Christ, when he says, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, he is with the Father immediately. There's no time, really, that Jesus spent in the underworld. Although sometimes we hear that in, uh, in the tradition. But the significance of this uh, is the significance of, of Jesus being in the underworld is not something that, uh, that has to be confined in a specific time, in, let's say, the days be between his crucifixion and, uh, uh, and his resurrection. What we see instead in this icon 
and um, the representation of the descent to Hades is Jesus raising Adam and Eve um, and the prophets who anticipated his, um, his crucifixion and resurrection and leading them all the way to, to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, while he has broken the gates of, of, of Hades, he has uh, bound uh, death uh, himself. So we can simply ask, when did that happen? Um, the when is something that we live um, we lived back then in the historical resurrection, and since then, every single day of our life, the theme of that icon is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the, the resurrection of humanity by Jesus Christ. So, in this way, the um, the, the whole technique of the inverted perspective of mirroring myself to this, of looking at this as a mirror of my present condition of trying to find myself, of starting with my own perspective in the icon. All this tells me that uh, this is a comment, if you wish, or a violation of the here and now, not simply a historical memory of, from the past. Yes, we're aware of the history, we acknowledge it, but that's not the, the, the most interesting thing for, for us. And this is also um, reflected in uh, uh, in, in, uh, in most of festival celebrations. In the majority of, um, of our hymnography, of Eastern hymnography, we get a sense of um, things happening in the present. There's a long prayer, that, um, uh, for instance, um, that is read um, before the, or during the, the, the uh, sanctification of the waters in the Feast of Theophany. And it goes something like, today, Jesus is descending in the Jordan. Today are the waters sanctified. Today they, the, uh, the sea uh, turns back. Today this, today that, today the other thing. So we live this, not as, as historical memory, but uh, in, in considering what these events mean for our life today. We are there. We are being crucified with Jesus Christ. We are being resurrected with him. We are being baptized with him. We are, he is born inside us all the time. Um, this is the, the message of immediacy that we find in the tradition, in the hymnography, and very strongly in uh, the icons. Uh, it's a brilliant connection. You know, we, we do the same thing during the Friday, the crucifixion service. You know, we have a whole series of uh, yep. chants that begin with Yaumono, you know, Yaumono today. Yep. And um, it's everything is happening now, right? It's mm. not, you know, it's not just a, a meditation on a past event. And yep. so it, it makes me think, you know, what, what, what's the point of history? You know, we can chronicle events, but if they don't have a context that um, makes them worth remembering or encountering, in our case, it's encountering, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's living in these, um, you know, what did happen in history still happens. And the icon is a way of, of engaging you know, with that event. Um, let's talk in the, the time remaining just about a couple of the examples and maybe some of the more obscure ones. Like I'm really fascinated by the all-seeing eye, you know, the, mm. the way that God is, I mean, this isn't um, something that started in the medieval times. I mean, this happened, you know, in the ancient world that God is represented with an eye. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that when you saw the first episode of the podcast, you're one of the few people who could understand 
what I'm doing <laughs> with, <laughs> with this symbol, um, eye-wise. And so I thought that would be a good icon to, you know, to, to discuss and maybe even its antecedents right in the burning bush or um, <laughs> you know, whatever comes before to develop this. And tell us a little bit about it first. I mean, it's um, a Russian icon, correct? <laughs> it is, yes. Uh, now, some of the icons that um, uh, I talk about uh, can be found in any Christian tradition, in any Orthodox tradition, but um, um, towards the end, I, I um, said a few things about icons that, are, that belong to the Romanian Slavic tradition mostly. And I think the old thing I is a very specifically Russian icon. And it's a very unusual icon. Um, um, an icon that is not seen very very often. Many people, um, well, several of the, of the people who hear the podcast may have no idea what we're talking about, and they may just start googling it to see what what is this this icon. And of course, it's 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 fascinating. Now, the reason I, I was fascinated by that icon and I wanted to include well that kind of an example is because it's such a non-narrative um, icon. Um, you don't know what you're seeing, and the more you start reflecting on what you think you see here, what you see there, uh, the more that icon draws you towards some unexpected pathways of uh, discovery of, um, of, 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 of the presence of God. Um, you know, these, these concentric circles that we find, uh, they, they point towards a, uh, an increasing revelation of, of God. But there's a very interesting thing about uh, that kind of um, space arrangement. Now, that is not the kind of um, imagery that we're too familiar with in the, in the Orthodox or in the Christian tradition. We have some, uh, some more examples, and perhaps the example that, we, that is more uh, famous, not as, in their, not as an entire icon, but at least as uh, one um, component of a known icon, is the, uh, the glory or the aureole of, um, of the Transfiguration. Right. Which is also another fascinating topic in itself. But um, what is fascinating about the icon of the eye is that it's all this, um, this mysterious icon, this mysterious symbol. Now, as I said, we don't have many examples like that in, um, in the Christian traditions, a tradition uh, example that may be described as a reflective icon. Um, but we can see similar symbols in other traditions. So in this case, I think we can certainly speak about um, um, the equivalent of a mandala, of that kind of archetypal space, um, archetypal imagery that we find in the um, in the Indian, in the Buddhist tradition. Um, and the interesting thing about the mandala in, in these traditions is that um, the importance is not so much on the uh, image itself, but in the act of reflection that leads to the, um, the creation of the image. So it's a process, it's a trajectory. And I think we, we can see something similar here if we, can, if we, if we, um, if we um, think of this icon and by extrapolation, many other icons, even the more narrative ones, as, a, as uh, inviting us to, towards a process of uh, continuous discovery. Yeah, I, I like that and how it relates to so many other um, aspects of call it theology, um, where the eye is an awareness of mm. seeing and being seen, yep. you know, of what it means to be, uh, of being watched, right, where the, the mirror gazes back 
you know, at you that this icon is not just an object, but it's a way of being seen when it's in your presence. Um, whether mm. it's this eye, whether it's this icon or a number of other icons, um, whether it's about God um, looking at us or whether it's about the human being, a, you know, this creature able to perceive, right? The, the ader, who is the anthropos, right? Mm-hmm. The, the seeing human, right? The, the human who um, is capable of, or the, the man who is capable of sight, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Ephraim the Syrian has a, uh, a, some fascinating um, perspective on this idea, that the idea of a luminous eye. This, mm. uh, I know the Shvito that, you know, once it's opened, um, you know, can perceive heaven, can perceive the, the true identity of the self, which is the image and likeness of God. Right. And that's it. He, he incorporates that with um, a lot of mirror imagery. You know, it, it's like it, it's just a poetic version of Athanasius, mm-hmm. you know, like content wise, they're very similar. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the idea of finding oneself through cleaning a mirror. Now, those of you listening, thinking mirrors today, it's not the same as the ancient world. <laughs> ancient world, you've got yes. a slab of, of metal that yep. you polish that that tarnishes, right? Um, think of something like silver. Silver is one of the brightest metals um, out there. Um, and uh, it also is one of the most tarnished and darkest metals if it's not kept uh, polished mm-hmm. and shiny. And so Ephraim sees life as this process of um, keeping the mirror clean so that when we perceive back, we can see the image of God, yeah. you know, um, which is both about God and us, right? And so mm-hmm. I think why I'm fascinated by that example is it's, it's, as you said, it's so relational in mm-hmm. what it asks us to do or the awareness it creates. Uh, there are so many things that, you, that we, could, uh, we, um, we, could, we could talk about, um, about them for hours. Um, I wanted to find um, very quickly an image, uh, one of my favorite images of um, uh, by my mo- a modern iconographer, Stamatis uh, Kriis, that I want to share with you if I can. Um, an icon of uh, Isaac the Syrian. And he has tried to represent him as, um, uh, as light. Oh. Uh, I think I found it. Now, can you see what I'm, uh, what I'm seeing? Right, yes. Yeah, that's, that's a modern icon of Isaac the Syrian. And I, I find this fascinating. It's it's painted with, with in light, mm. but there is so much about um, there's so much to say about um, uh, um, about the significance of of, um, uh, of light, of seeing, of gazing, of what is visible, what is not visible. Uh, the whole uh, agony of the human being is to to get to see God mm. and to be seen by God, and yet at the same time, it's it's what terrifies us. Um, the the beginning of, of the gospel according to John after all that's that that important thing about the laws gets very quickly into God as light and how uh, the people who wanted to uh, hide their guilt did not want to step into the light so it seems uh, that this reminds us that um, um, the process to salvation um, the trajectory the the, the ways to do, um, to to um, 
get towards God is simply the daring act of being aware of our sinfulness, um, our, the parts inside us that are, have not been clean enough, uh, and yet to not deny uh, access to God, to step in, into the light with all our deformities, with all our problems, with all our sins. Uh, and the assurance that is given by the entire Christian tradition, of course, is that God forgives. Mm-hmm. But you have to ask for this forgiveness. You have to ask to be seen by God, not to hide from him. So how do we do this? Um, uh, if there's no... Um, uh, since um, uh, the sun was a great symbol for the ancient Egyptians, uh, uh, so to uh, the, the source of, of, of divinity and light, um, the sense of mirror is uh, much more accurate for us. And as you said very correctly, as the fathers remind us to, to, uh, to clean that mirror. So to keep it clean so that the, the gaze of God can work within us because we have nothing to hide because we don't want to hide anything, even our own sins. So um, by allowing ourselves to be seen by God, perhaps is um, how we get to the hope of, of trying to see God as well. Ah. I love it. And, you know, like the book, that, that's a, while that's a great quote, I, one of the things I came away with while reading the book is I have a, uh, a number of places highlighted because it's so quotable. Like you, you know, there's a lot of uh, excellent quotes in that book. And in fact, you may see me posting on that um, in a short time from now. So uh, like you said, we could talk for several hours and maybe that just means I'm going to have you back more often. And um, I, re- I thank you a lot for coming on and, and sharing, you know, the, the ideas behind this book um, with us. And I really hope that the listeners out there and, and people who aren't subscribers, you know, just go ahead and, and try and get your hands on the book. It's, uh, it, it's, it's worth having and it's worth thinking about. It, it really asks us to um, provide a new framework for in- encountering reality, or I would say, maybe it's not a new framework, the appropriate framework um, in our tradition, right? Well, thank you for saying that, Michael, and thank you for the hospitality. All right. Okay, well, thanks. Um, We will talk to you all soon and, um, you know, grab it where it can be found. I'll I'll include links in below. Take care. Mm -hmm.